So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much uh, for the invitation. And I will start by apologising for messing up on the date. Yesterday there was a, a calendar clash, uh, which I hadn't realised, and meetings got moved. So I was uh, drawn down to the MRC, which is, uh, again, another role and responsibility I have, which I'll come to uh, momentarily. So I apologise for that. I'm very pleased to see you are a brave man. We have one lonely fella in the front row there. Uh, so I hope this is actually pitched for just anybody who is developing their career. Uh, because I do have a passionate belief that it is just as much the boys and men's role as it is the women's role to cope with many of the, particularly if you're going to go down the family line, some of the juggling acts that we have to do. I know that we overly focus on the women and in many ways that's right but I do believe that the generation which you represent is just a very different place now and certainly my children's generation my daughter's going forward she keeps complaining at me whenever I do raise some women's acts why are you still all going on about that it really isn't an issue anymore so um, this is very much pitched just for sort of the difficulties of trying to manage uh, and maintain an internationally competitive scientific research career whilst one wants to also enjoy all the other aspects that life has to offer us. As Jenny said, I did my undergraduate and graduate here in Oxford. I was actually a local girl. I went to a, a comprehensive school up in Kidlington, Gosford Hill, and from there I came and did my undergraduate in biochemistry. We actually overlapped and were contemporaries. And during that period, I don't know if any of you take on any of the undergraduate project uh, students. Yeah, sometimes it's a little bit of a curse, depending on the quality of what you receive, and sometimes it's a bit of a nuisance. But I would passionately suggest that you should fulfil your role in offering projects and supporting them because that was really the route by which many of us who went on to choose what type of PhD research we wanted to do or defill was really from that taster that we had as the undergraduates where we got to do a project uh, and again in those days it was a sort of five month, six month stay. So one of our lecturers um, was George Rada who had started off the whole idea of in vivo NMR, the idea that you could actually look at living tissue in either a living animal or in a human and you could extract biochemical information from it and understand mechanisms and disease. And that just worked for me. I was just really, really attracted as an undergraduate to that lecture where the idea that you could actually look at the real thing at a systems level and yet get molecular information and put it all together with what the person described or other things that you could measure, just that just struck a chord. So I did my undergraduate project with him and again that was in the old days of nuclear magnetic resonance which we've now relabeled magnetic resonance because people got worried with the word nuclear in it that we were giving uh, radioactive things inside them and the whole point of the principle of the technique is that it's a non-invasive very safe methodology to use so our recruitment rates were very low when we had the banner of NMR so the whole field moved to more calling it MR and it gave me that window to just sort of see in reality over four or five months how interesting the tool was or wasn't in terms of getting chemical information about different key metabolites focused very much on muscle disorders which is what I was working on then uh, and that sort of sparked my interest that I wanted to stay on and do a defil. So I did, and therein lies another sort of, uh, again, sort of point that I want to stress, that throughout the defil with George, which was, again, very focused on muscle, because that was what the group was very interested in, muscle and heart disease, there was a flexibility in the style by which he ran that group, and the senior postdocs who were the mentors that really looked after you on a day-to-day -day level, that although it was a a sort of biochemical metabolic group with a very clear focus on muscle disorders, Duchenne muscular dystrophy being one of them that I was working on, there was a tolerance and a freedom to let you, even as an as a early graduate student, taste and try and suggest that in this big empire, which it was, that actually I quite liked 
to work on something else and I'm quite interested in the brain and could I have a go at doing a project that maybe would look at the brain from you know the same perspectives of using these tools and understanding the biochemistry of it but apply it to again a different organ I know these days we're very very uh, we're so restricted in, in in our boundaries and we have to focus so much but Back in the day, uh, which wasn't too long ago, there was a lot more flexibility and freedom to allow you to explore different things. And again, I think that's a fantastic thing that we must try and preserve while still balancing that one has to be focused because that's the only way to be competitive. To allow, if you've got a student who really does have a strong desire to do something a little bit different, well, you know, my view would be, and I still allow this since the style are in my group, then sure, have a go, try and persuade me that you can take this in a slightly different direction and maybe bring something completely new and a new trajectory to that group. So that was where I made the sort of transition into neuroscience. And as Jenny will know, as biochemists, we never had any neuroscience training. It wasn't part of the, the four-year degree. But that was when I decided I wanted to stay and move more in the neuroscience area. And just about that time, this whole concept of being able to use these big magnets from which we would normally get this sort of chemical information about the biochemistry of different tissues, the whole concept of functional imaging was being developed. I don't know if you know, any of you know much about functional imaging. So the basic principle goes back to, in fact, an observation that Sherrington made here in Oxford many centuries ago, and that is that there is a direct one-to-one -one coupling in the brain between when the neurons work and the delivery of blood to that area of the brain. So the feeding of the neurons in terms of oxygen demands and in terms of glucose demands has to be delivered by what we call a hemodynamic response. And this is a localised delivery. This isn't just a global arrival of more oxygenated blood to the brain. This is very specifically in the area that the brain is working. There is a local change in the delivery of, of blood. And I won't go into the details because I've deliberately not bought slides today, but the way that that oxygenated blood arrives and how it changes the balance of oxy to deoxyhemoglobin provides a change in signal intensity on an image. And this was observed many, many years ago in George Rada's group in biochemistry where they were just playing around with oxygenating blood at different levels and realising that you could change a fundamental measure that you were imaging in terms of the water would alter dependent on the oxygenation state of the blood. And Sherrington, of course, hundreds of years ago had had this understanding, this fundamental new understanding about how the brain worked, which is that there is a local delivery of blood flow there. Many, many centuries later, we had MR, non-invasive ways of looking at things. We had this observation that serendipitously oxygenated blood as opposed to deoxygenated blood would change the magnetic intensity of the image. And then all this came together once imaging had been invented, uh, which, as you know, was done in Nottingham by Peter Mansfield. He won the Nobel Prize several years ago for physiology and medicine for developing MRI, standard MRI that you would use in a hospital. But all that had to be put together. And the lab in Harvard that I went to was the lab that sort of pieced it together, building on, again, some early work that was being done in the late 80s and 90s that... Sherrington's observations, these observations in biochemistry in Oxford, the ability to do magnetic resonance imaging. Wouldn't it be amazing if we took you, put you in the scanner, made you see, say, lights, your visual cortex, which is the bit of the brain that allows you to see, is working. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was enough change in signal intensity due to the local arrival of blood that now we can image, we could see a, a tiny change in signal intensity when we're imaging when you're looking at something versus when you have, say, you know, the room in dark black. And that was the first sort of experimental concept that was done by, again, several groups around the world, and it worked. Basically, we had just enough change in oxy to deoxyhemoglobin, 
change in one of these MR parameters of what you're imaging of water, that in vivo, in a person, as they're perceiving something, as they're sensing something, as they're smelling something, as they're remembering something, as in my case I'm burning you and you're experiencing pain, the bits of the brain that encode all those perceptions, which is what makes you a living person, we can map and track the change in neural activity due to this change in blood flow and due to the change in signal intensity. So it's a really exciting time. And I was at the pivotal point, as many of you probably have been yourselves. You finished your PhD, your DPhil. Are you going to stay in research or are you going to go off into the city and make loads of money or maybe retrain in law or something else? And, and I know that, you know, let's admit it, many of us go through those sort of decision-making processes because it is not an easy career to choose to go down the scientific career because it is a very tough one and it is a very competitive one. And this whole exciting area of functional imaging was being developed. I was just coming out of a big lab that had obviously been part of the evolution of MR and the use of it non-invasively. So I thought, OK, I'll give it a go. I'll go to Harvard. I'll do a postdoc for a couple of years. And depending on how that pans out, I'll then decide I'm going to stay in science or at that point I'll just about have time enough to pull out and retrain and do something else. So I went to the lab at Harvard, and again, that was another great thing that I would encourage you, if you do get the opportunities uh, to go abroad, I know many of you probably are from abroad and coming here, in Oxford, very often you meet people who've just never really left, um, and I think if you can do a sabbatical or if you can do some sort of spell uh, in, a, in a, I mean, it doesn't matter where it is, but I think in a large place which is very involved in academic science, like the States is such obviously a major player. It, it was a wonderful two years opportunity to not only go to the lab that was inventing this new tool, which is where I decided I was going to you know, focus my neuroscience career in, but also just to witness being in a very different cultural way of doing scientific research, which America is, you know, obviously it's a major player in biomedical research. And it was a fantastic two years, not only in terms of just personally, um, but also the collaborations and the contacts you've made. And also just to see how both the lay society as well as the academic environment, their attitudes to science and how different and contrasting that was to how it is in the UK. And I think even just a short period of time, which I had, just two years, was very impressionable. And I still see that lab as almost home from home. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's been 20 years since I've been there, but they welcome me as if I only left last week. You make some very good and firm connections when you have these opportunities. And again, I think if you can't afford a, a period of time, even just to go and do a three-month spell somewhere, very, very educational and very broadening in terms of things you see that you like or don't like and what you can bring back. Uh, and certainly there were good and bad things that I saw in my experiences there. We can go into those in question and answer rather than on film. Um, but certainly, you know, mostly very positive experiences, uh, which, again, one could bring back. So we came back here then, 96. I'd just got married in the interim. My husband then came out and joined me. He worked at MIT. He was my official trailing spouse, which is how the Americans politely refer to your partner, should they be following you on your visa. And we had a wonderful, you know, overlapping for... I was there for two years. He was just there for a year. And then we'd return back uh, to the UK. And that's when we were basically here because the concept of establishing FIMRIP was had. So the idea that, well, here's Oxford. We have a great presence in the development of MR. We have great neuroscience this sort of tool is now available, which has just completely exploded onto the horizon and given us this amazing tool for the first time to actually map and see how the human brain works and how it goes wrong 
in the different disease processes, we should be establishing a centre here in Oxford. So the idea of establishing the functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain, or FIMRIB centre, was born by three professors, uh, John Newsom Davis, who was the former head of neurology, sadly passed away, Alan Cowie, who was the former head of experimental psychology, sadly passed away just at Christmas, and uh, George Rada, who was the head of biochemistry at the time, but at that point he was just moving to run the MRC, and he is still alive, I'm happy to report, and based in Singapore. So those three professors basically got the initial money to set up FrimRib, and that was it. It was pretty rawly done. Uh, myself returned from the States, Paul Matthews, who was the first appointed director, returned from Montreal. We were it, and we still didn't have actually quite enough money to make the thing happen. So it was done on a bit of a high-risk uh, sort of hope and a wing and a prayer that this thing was going to happen and we'd put our careers on, on hold to make that happen. But it did. We managed to get the final piece of funding from the university. We built the centre and off it started in 1997. Within four years, we just had expanded up to 55 people. We had to then double the size of the building, so it's now about 1,000 square feet. Uh, Paul left um, in 2005, and that's when I took over directing it, so I've been directing it for the past eight years. Now, during that very early period, and I guess that's the bit that maybe some of you uh, younger postdocs looking here were sort of at that phase. I'd come back, I'd only in effect been a two-year postdoc, and I was thrust very early into, in effect, holding quite a bit of my time and day job, which I should have been really dedicating to my own independent research, into helping establish and build this centre. And, and for the few others that we recruited in who were looking going to be heading the physics, so Peter Jezzard and Steve Smith heading the image analysis, so there's the sort of four key people of us looking after the different elements of the lab. We all were young. None of us were on tenure positions. Everything was on a shoestring. We were all giving an extraordinary amount of our time for the good of just setting up this thing, that it would be a hub for neuroimaging for the university, but with the hope that that would deliver and then we would be able to capitalise and realise the benefits of it. But it's something that, again, is a major piece, I think, of your career development, is this balance between how much are you going to do sort of good citizenship things and how much are you going to be just out and out for yourself. And that can be done and thought about on a very microscopic level, within your own group even, certainly at a slightly larger level within your department, then you go within the university, then you go nationally and internationally. To all the things that as you progress in your career, you get called upon to participate and help do, whether that's, again, editorial responsibilities, whether that's membership on different committees, helping in your own societies in terms of organising meetings, um, again, other committees that the university require and need people who are what we are, which is the university. There isn't a magical group of people out there who run it. It's run by us people stepping up and doing that thing. And, and I'm not sure I've got the solution right. Certainly I've had almost a sort of back-to-front career in that I've been very heavily loaded very early with a lot of um, management and leadership roles which um, came quite fast and whilst I was still really developing what I was interested in, which is my own personal area in, in pain, which I'll come to in a minute, whilst also being a young person and wanting a family and starting a family... Often it's done the other way around. You have a protected period of time. Once you've got all that done, you then pick up more and more sort of leadership. I'm not to say that there's a right or wrong model for this, but certainly what I would say, and I would say this particularly to the women in the audience, and that's no uh, disrespect to yourself, that, that there isn't enough women who step forward um, and volunteer to do that. Quite often they prefer to just sort of sit in the, in the background maybe, um, feel that they won't be wanted, feel that they're going to be undermined. You know, all the usual insecurities and things that we see or hear played out. Personally, whenever I interact with women who have stepped up and they're part of that 
there's, there's no issues. I, you know, I, I have lived and worked in this place. I love the bones of this university, and I have been very, very well supported at every stage of my career. I've never really personally experienced any difficulties in that regard. I don't know whether that's a dispositional thing in terms of just the way I approach things, but I can certainly say, hand on heart, if I've wanted to achieve something or do something, the wonders of the democracy of this place is that you'll rarely find anybody who's going to actually limit it and dampen it down. You'll often find if you've got the will and the desire and it's a good idea, to be quite frank, you'll get support to execute that thing and achieve what you want to do. And, you know, quite often, again, it, it is true that if there is a bit more representation from women and they step up a little bit and get involved a little bit more, some of the sort of false apprehensions that they have or misapprehensions and misunderstandings will be dispelled. And it's only really by that slow, slow ability to actually be involved, to understand the process, to take that back and, again, dispel incorrect statements or, or comments from your juniors in your developing groups is how we're going to really change culturally the way we're doing things. And I think, obviously, the Athena Swan has, is a great vehicle that's kick-starting that whole process by having people just put a brakes on everything and saying, actually, let's have a look at our working environment. You know, why don't we have this? You know, you could argue, why do we have to have something to kick-start that process? We should have done it. Well, everybody's just very busy, to be honest. Again, it's not anything malicious or anything that's going on conspiratorially behind the scenes. Everybody's just really busy. Nobody's got time to be bothered with that sort of thing. But, you know, I often find that sometimes the overly maybe looking at the negative and complaining, which tends to sometimes happen from certain quarters, is often because of a lack of understanding or a misunderstanding of the reality of actually how the place works, how the place functions. So get involved, step up, understand the system, understand that you are the university and you are the, the people who are going to change things and take it forward. And it's only by those slow steps that we can, we can you know, again, culturally overturn maybe some of the uh, in, environmental things that you might not like. Now, having said that, this question is what balance? What balance of sort of taking on do you do? As I said, mine's sort of always gone back to front. And I, I personally think, you know, on hindsight, when I look back, maybe it would be better to sort of more slowly evolve your development. So, again, you're in a period of time now where you've got the time to be focusing on your research. You go for that because it's publish or perish. That is the end game for all of us still. You're as good as the last paper until the day you retire. So, you know, that is sacrosanct. But there is this responsibility to also learn how as you evolve you're going to not only maintain that excellence that you have developed in your position hopefully leading to more and more security and longevity but how are you going to then do your good citizenship and take on the other responsibilities and and that is something that again you you are going to have to work out the course you know yourselves individually there's certainly many systems and mechanisms within this place that you might not be aware of that will help you facilitate that and learn how to juggle and manage the time. The short answer is that, again, I find a lot of the younger students coming through, their expectations have been terribly mismanaged from sort of school life on, particularly in the girls, that their expectations, their expectations are, you know, we're in a modern world, I can have it all. Of course I can have this and that and the other. And the reality is you absolutely can't. So, I mean, any of us... You know, and genuinely the same with children, if you want to also combine having a family life, well, it's just totally unrealistic and naive to think you're going to have, you know, the idyllic amounts of time that you would all want to have with your children whilst also, you know, doing your good citizenship and taking a leadership role and running still an internationally competitive lab. Something has to give and you're going to have to make the individual decision which one you're going to do. So, so the first thing is just to get real, to be honest, about your expectations. Now, having said that... 
it is sort of possible. I don't think I've shortchanged my kids too badly. They might have a very different uh, statement on that one. They probably prefer the fact I'm not around very much. Um, I've been in the fortunate position that my husband is also an academic in a more theoretical end of things. And so the beauty that we all have in this job as much as there are difficulties with this job and, and again, the, the insecurity of it, the not very many tenured posts, the fact that, again, you're as good as your last paper, so, you know, it's just a brutally competitive career, is that we have fantastic flexibility in this job. And one should learn sooner rather than later to be confident how to utilise that flexibility. I don't mean abuse it, but to maximise it and to use it because it is the one major positive offset that this job has which you don't see in many other jobs and it's a fantastic um, mechanism which does enable you to start to see how you can do that juggling and of course that juggling is going to vary in your different points so again if I compared each five years of my life they've been extraordinarily different in the different demands I've had both within my own role as it's evolved but also in my own personal life as that has again paralleled that uh, in, in situ and that might be you know, again, your immediate family, it might be parental illnesses and responsibilities that you have in, in other areas of life. And again, a good group leader or a good head of department will be cognizant of you and your current position and should appropriately and flexibly help you balance what phase you're at now so that somebody who's maybe coming out of an extraordinarily manically busy phase is given a little bit more stretch and freedom and, and again there's no point sitting thinking that that's just going to happen top down you've got to engage you've got to communicate you've got to let the people who are part of your line management be aware of where you are at in your life what is it you feel you need in order to cope with this next period of time which again will change you know sort of in five yearly blocks if you like as you go through this sort of passage so again, to sort of not assume that one model is going to be it for the next 25 years, it's just not like that anymore. You've got to more break it down in terms of what stage you're at now, what are the needs that you've got, the fact that you've got this fabulous job with this incredible flexibility, which you can juggle. So, you know, when I had my first child, even though I was still establishing Fimbrim Centre, I, I negotiated that I would have a day at home. And that day at home, which would give me at least one full day with a, you know, my new child extra, that was sort of offsetted for the fact that postdoc salaries are hopeless and there was no room to increase it. So that was a sort of way of giving me something back for, again, a lot of effort I'd put into helping establish that at that point was a personal really rewarding thing to have that sort of got us through the first couple of years of having, and my husband did the same. Come full circle, my third child came when I was just absolutely out of control, busy, um, just taken on Fimrib. I was a full medical tutor at Christchurch because in this interim I'd also taken on a university lectureship post uh, under Kay Davis's department. And so I had a full teaching load uh, for four years as a UL tutorial fellow. My other tutorial fellow was, uh, had left, so I was the sole tutor there. I was examiner for finals. So I walked over from my office, had my third child, and within a month was back at work again. And my husband took my maternity leave, and somehow the university f sort of managed and flexed that out, that he then formally looked, now not ideal maybe on a personal level, but it worked for us because that sort of worked at the time. And at the end of the day, again, it goes back to that choice. You know, I'd taken on the responsibility of these things. It was going to be completely impossible for me to fulfil those obligations without some 
sacrifice at some point. And so, again, we utilised the flexibility that we both had to manage that situation. And, again, one, one will have to see whether that was detrimental in the long term <laughs> for the youngest. He seems all right so far. So, so the flexibility, and, again, you might not have the luxury of having, again, a, a husband or a partner when it comes to the family bit who's got that match. I'm very lucky, and, and without uh, my husband being able to do what he's been able to do, there is absolutely no way I can say that now I'd be able to have achieved what I've done and also have had the, the you know, richness and rewards of having a, a family life as well. So let me just then finish just by talking about, again, some very key things that also on that trajectory have been important for me in terms of mentorship and, again, role models, um, because that's obviously a very, very important component of this piece. Um, I mean, it's clear that, you know, I, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate from my undergraduate through. I had Eric Newsome, who was a, a wonderful tutor as an undergraduate. I had George Rado, who was a brilliant uh, leader for scientific research for my PhD out at Harvard. I had wonderful mentors there. And then when I came back, again, I was in John Newsome Davis's department. So I've had really, really super heads of department. And after a couple of years of establishing FIMRIP, as I said, I then because none of us were on secure posts. We were all setting up this huge facility, which it seems crazy now when you think about it, and all of us were just on contract money. Not one of us was underpinned in university posts. So combined with having a kid, combined with the sort of need to... One of us had to get secure. I went for a university lectureship post in Kay Davis's department, which is the anatomy and genetics department. It's now merged and become DPAG, and I was fortunate enough to be appointed. That was in uh, 2001. And until 2005, I was, well, six, because I then finished off the teaching, I was in that post. So I had the very rare opportunity of having one of the few women senior uh, leaders, both internationally, but also here in Oxford, Kay Davis, as my head of department. And that was the first time I'd had a woman as a senior role model um, and directly interacting with. And to this day, Kay is an extraordinarily supportive and close mentor. She was always there. You know, we're going to meet for breakfast in a couple of weeks. She's a fantastic person who I has, was very fortunate to witness, again, her style of management and leadership as a head of department, which is a very different sort of cultural environment than what I had seen, uh, again, in other departments in a very positive way. Very, very good at spotting and keeping an eye on each individual member of staff, where they're at, as I said, in their career path, where maybe pressure could be relieved or put on somebody else who was a bit more free. Again, that, that ability to top down, be monitoring what was going on, but also a person you could very much speak to and could, again, you could, you could again communicate and flexibly work out what's best for you at that point in your career path. So I think for me that was a very... I was very fortunate in that regard. And when I then took on FIMRIB and, and took on the chair, momentarily I was sort of passed back through clinical neurology. At that point, Angela Vincent, who might be known to some of you, was head of clinical neurology. So again, I was spanned, split between down the hill and up the hill in two departments, both of which had the only two women heads of departments. So again, very unusual, very lucky. And again, Angela, I don't know if you know her, she's retired now, but working still flat out. Um, a wonderful, again, inspirational woman academic who one could look to both again like Kay as an out and out brilliant scientist but also as a very effective leader and head of department in terms of again their management style and what they did that's rare and I accept that's rare and that has been a really important part I think of my ability to one have the confidence to keep going and think well okay it must be possible to do it but also just to observe their different ways of doing things and again how meetings are conducted the different style of the meeting which one can then take out and take forward and I think it is notable that at FIMRIB which has now about 110 scientists and of many different